0: Welcome to the Film Scene
1: Podcast. Hey, Bobby. How are you doing, man? I'm doing good, Seth. How are you doing? Pretty good. I know we're recording good. this cast. All and...
2: things relative. All <laughs> things relative. <laughs> right. right. Relative.
1: Yeah. You know, we're recording this in the middle of the COVID-19 epidemic. And I'm right. saying it's the middle of the epidemic, but the truth is we don't even know if we've reached the halfway point or what stage of this thing that we're in,
2: right? No, I mean, I, I don't I don't know. I don't know how we would know or how we will know, right? You know, um, <laughs> Yeah. It's, uh, it, it makes all... I'm doing good, I'm doing fine all all that becomes very very relative right
1: yeah, that's true it's yeah it's a it's, it's there's there's too many things to say about that but the good news is
2: we have we have fun things to talk about and uh and 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 good movies
1: to to break down absolutely and for those that don't know, one of the things that we have to talk about is that uh Bobby's a screenwriter and we've been co-writing a project called sustenance together yeah the talks to that were before this whole crisis, but you know we've been doing a lot of co-writing during this process, remotely, of course.
2: Right, and and you know it's it's obviously not ideal, but all things considered, I, I think it's, it's I think it's great to have a long-term thing that you can kind of come back to each day with all this to kind of you know at least see it adding up to something for totally. you in some respect. Right, at the end of the day, you know, you have, uh, forty-five pages, not forty-eight pages, you know, that sort of thing. Absolutely. It's, it's a way to keep our sanity. Of, it's, yeah, it's almost a version of like carving the day tallies on the wall, right? Like, <laughs> Right. <laughs>
1: yeah. Let me ask you this, Bobby, and, and, I, and I'm not even sure if I know the answer. Did you always want to write screenplays? I, I know that you studied writing and screenwriting specifically at John Hopkins, but were you ever considering becoming some other sort of writer, or you always knew that you wanted to become a screenwriter?
2: Um, You know, I might not know the answer to that either. Um. <laughs> I, I I can kind of trace back an interest in it pretty far ways, but um, I, I, I don't know exactly what, what, what moment it was that spiked that interest to something that I was actively pursuing. I know that um, kind of from the moment I went into college, I went into college as a writing major in general, and I was looking for another subject to kind of pair with it, either to hedge bets on not getting a job or just something else I was interested in. I don't know, but, uh, I kind of went around to a few departments early on and I just, you know, fell in love immediately with the first, uh, film course that I took. It was, it was, it was great. And I just sort of knew maybe in a matter of weeks, that that was something I wanted to, to, to really dive into. And then the natural, combination of those two things was screenwriting but me and my friends would you know we'd joke about like writing like some sitcom or something together back in high school and actually this is kind of funny in hindsight but i, I remember in study hall in middle school i would like on just pen and paper write like little scripts for like a seventh grade parody of the office for like oh, me and yeah. my friends to, that's so funny to do which we never did of course yeah. but it was just sort of a fun way to kill 20 minutes
1: were you into um, both the british and american versions of the show
2: you know, I have seen the British versions, and all due respect to to that, I think that they're they're brilliant at what they do. It's just I I find the American version so much. I mean, the American version's it's the most popular show in 21st century TV. It's it, it, it's I still you know True. seen every episode five thousand times and, and and love it. Nice. Um, so the the British versions is, is great for what it is, but it's not. Something that I'm always eager to go back and, and rewatch because it's just you know the nature of the comedy is.
1: I never seen a so full episode cringy. of the British version, to be honest. It's with
2: you. it's great, it's great, but it's not easy
1: to watch. It's just a different thing.
2: Yeah, because it's 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 the cringiest moments of The Office just dialed up to eleven and stretched out for you know as long as they possibly can. It's great <laughs> at what it's doing, but yeah. but I I I, I it was a.
1: Addicted to the American version. Nice man. And what, um, and what first drew you into filmmaking in general? I don't know. It, I um, and I know from conversations with you that you you do have a pretty extensive uh, frame of reference with films, and you've seen a lot of old films, and some of them we'll talk about later on. Um, so you were always well, like guess, you've you've been a fan of cinema. It sounds like for a long time.
2: Yeah, I I guess in sort of in any reasonable answer to this question would say that i I've, I've had a pretty strong interest in 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 movies for pretty much my my entire life i remember you know an early childhood memory of mine is when my you know it was like i don't know it was like six or seven or something and my parents it was new year's eve and my parents you know changed all the clocks so that i would think that nine o'clock was really midnight and i stayed up till midnight on New Year's Eve, but they when, when that night we watched. Uh, I remember it was the night I saw North by Northwest for the first time, and and That's so growing awesome. up I was we were we were always watching Hitchcock films and stuff like that. I have always had a really strong affinity for it. Um, I would say it wasn't until college that I that I became interested in more seriously as a pursuit, and and, and certainly became interested in the practice of it. I remember but I do remember you know it was something that I has been a part of my interest set for a very long time although the way it was it was not the way that I kind of got into into writing um, which was actually through poetry at first and then and then into short fiction and then into screenwriting but that yeah. evolution happened very quickly
1: and were you reading a lot of poetry as well as writing poetry
2: yeah that started for me as a, as a teenager and and kind of just you know I stumble across either in school or out of school like some um, some new poet, new writer and get really, really into it. And, and sort of, you know, like kind of just like learning how to walk in terms of writing, like just try to do exactly what they were doing. And then I read back those things like five years later, it's like, I'm like, it's barely even legible. It's, you know, obviously not something that kind of stands on any kind of, not stands on anything like its own two feet, but, but is first, Interests in those areas and and yeah, I mean it, it all sort of evolved from there. I still I still am interested in that, but I haven't been been writing um, very much poetry or or prose fiction.
1: Not even squeezing in a haiku here and there. <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh man, you know I I used to feel like it's a totally different like frame of mind that you have to be in to, to kind of make those switches. Although like I don't know, I no, I, don't right, know, I know, know what you mean. I
1: used to that. write, which was kind of poetic because. It's it, it's rhyming. I used to write a lot of lyrics, like song lyrics, which mm-hmm. could be. Oh, that was poem. another
2: thing that was. I, yeah, I got super into that
1: in, in middle school. Yeah. Nice. And where'd you grow up, Bobby?
2: I grew up in Ridgewood, New Jersey. During I'd say it's probably definitely a child of the of the off, Um going to, to to school in the I guess post nine eleven, Northern New Jersey sphere.
1: Yeah, definitely a crazy time to grow up, but also. It it does sound like you came from a an interesting family that encouraged watching cinema and things like that. If you were watching North by Northwest at such such a young age and, you know, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. That's pretty cool. So was your family really into films and movies?
2: Well, yeah, my well in, in, in each in their own way, I think. My my mom loves uh love really loves 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 the classical era and, and Hitchcock and stuff like that and, and you know, she's she she's so like, kind and empathetic that she just can't stand violence on screen at all, and she just gravitates towards those, like, you know, those great old movies where, you know that's, that's kind of not so much the, the thing, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. Which is, so which is good. See, cause them.
1: my mom also doesn't like watching violent things, but she ends up watching the Hallmark channel a lot. <laughs> so <laughs> we don't exactly have the same taste in movies. Oh man. <laughs> but that's, yeah, so
2: that's kind of what, what movies were on, were, were on a lot when I was, when I was growing up We we, you know, fire up a, an old Hitchcock or Frank Capra or something. Um, that's pretty cool. And, and that's kind of been a film, a film noir or
1: something.
2: Yeah. I, that's been a base of mine. It's a, sort of a home base for, for my film interests for ever. yeah.
1: I grew up, spent a lot of time with my grandparents when I was growing up, and, mm-hmm. which, you know, they were Albanian immigrants and they worked as superintendents in Manhattan. But because they were supers, it meant that they had cable in their house. And so every mm. night I used to watch HBO and it was just like a tradition to watch like some sort of movie that was on, and nice. so I got exposed to a lot of great films that way from a young age. Just you know, right nice. it, it felt like every film that I watched when I was a kid was great. You know, because, I know, right? It,
2: isn't it nice just not having any ability to be like negative about a, a film when you're a right. kid and you get, Like I oh, was great. Battle of the Moon was great. They're yeah. all great. Yeah, <laughs> right. All exactly.
1: <laughs> That's how yeah. I felt. Yeah. <laughs> So so then what? So then you so you took that course in college. There must have been a good professor in that film course.
2: Oh, it was great. Um she and I have uh, become good friends and good friends and
1: kind awesome. of a
2: mentor to the whole department really.
1: Oh, that's, um, that's fantastic.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I mean it, it was sort of something that I was always I I, I always liked Movies and stories, and I was a really, really big reader as a kid. I would, I would read a, a lot more than I do now, which is kind of puts me to shame.
1: Yeah, sometimes but, it's a time uh, thing. I used to read a lot more as well.
2: Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what it was. But, yeah. um, but so that was always something I, I, I liked and was interested in. And then, kind of on getting to college and thinking more seriously about, well, what do I want to dive into as a, as a long term. Pursuit and and actually take it seriously and and try to do it. It kind of all, I don't want to say it fell into place exactly because I don't know. There's, there's still choices you have to make, but but it w- really just felt so natural and 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 yeah. Nice. Um, yeah. Not that it was not that it, I, I I was certainly not a natural to it. I had a lot to and I still have a lot to figure out. But it just you know it was one of those things where. Even in the sort of down moments, you're just like, "Well, I, 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 I have to do this," you know. I, I know that you've talked about um, your interest in, in film, sort of being like a just like a given fact, you know, and not something that you really feel like you have that much of a say in. It's Kind of, I think that way for a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, it, it,
1: yeah, it it is that way for sure. There's something it's um, it's like a compulsion almost. <laughs> Something that drives you in that direction, you know you feel driven to it's like even if I didn't want to do this, I have to do this somehow, mm-hmm. but I love it, yeah, you know? and
2: yeah when you' cause when it's going great, it's so much fun right when it's when it's when it's going going well at least,
1: yeah, exactly, and you know, I was always interested in films and movies and watching them, and but I didn't pursue it unlike unlike you, I didn't really pursue it in college, I actually ended up studying business because it just felt like at the time, like, ah, oh, that's not for us, you know. That's mm-hmm. a pipe dream. That's not for people like me, which, you know, it's just my own limited beliefs. You know, nobody had said that to me. It just felt that way because I guess mm-hmm. I just didn't know enough, you know? And also I had taken a class at the school of visual arts when I was in high school on the weekends, like the d- directing course. And we would watch movies like citizen Kane. And we a, there was a great professor there that really taught us a lot. And actually the 16 yeah. year old me, felt daunted by how much work was involved in filmmaking. (laughs) I was like, wait a minute. (laughs) All it encompasses all this. I'm like, this is just, I don't know if I can handle it, you know, but then when you get older and then you start to actually develop a work ethic and, you you start to get into different things. I was doing welding iron work and you start to realize, mm-hmm. well, a lot of things are a lot of work, you know, right. like most career paths, if you really want right. to take them seriously are an incredible amount of work. So you might as well then gravitate toward the thing that you actually feel passionate about. And Yeah. You well, I, like I think my fulfilling. sort of
2: saving grace in that respect was was not not figuring out how much work it was until I was already like way into it. I'm like,
1: well, <laughs> at the point of no I'm return. Here, you know? Yeah, yeah, um, <laughs> that's that's probably pretty good. Yeah, but I guess that was my realization. Then later on, I was like, wait, wait a minute. You know, like a lot of things are a lot of work, so you know, you might as well mm-hmm. gravitate toward the thing that you actually want to do.
2: Well, because that's what's gonna, yeah, because that's what's going to keep you interested and going. And, and you know, you, I, I, yeah. in my experience like, you can do kind of any amount of work towards something that you. That you love and that you want to do and you care about, but even you know there are some things that like I would just not want to put effort into at all if you don't like the thing you're doing, you know, if you don't like the effort, if you don't like the outcome. That's, it's just a so hundred times harder to to sort of try in the way that you're going to need to 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 do anything. You know, yeah.
1: Now, and I know. So for those of you that don't know, which is most of you, I, I first met Bobby because he was an intern at Alphabet City Films. And then we ended up keeping in touch and
2: mm-hmm.
1: being friends and, you know, now collaborators. Um, and that, and that I like was, to give... That was, what, five years ago? Yeah, about guy? that, yeah. you know.
2: My first ever job in... in well, job, in quotes. My first ever sort of experience in in, in the professional film setting was I, I interned at Big Beach Films,
1: which is a great in company York. that made great company *Sunshine*. Great company.
2: And, and, great experience. Great people.
1: And so many um, other great movies. *Safety Not Guaranteed*, which is a movie that I really yeah. loved. And, um, and and
2: even more recently, since I since I left there, they more recently they did *The Farewell*. Day uh, in the it was neighborhood. Fantastic
1: film. *The Farewell* um, was so great.
2: I, I still have to see oh, that. Oh man, you have I, to see it. I, yeah. I meant to see that. All last summer I meant to see that and I, I I never got around to it and I'm mad at myself now.
1: Yeah, it's well, you're in for a treat. That's a good one.
2: You gotta make that happen. Yeah. But um So but what did a you do for Big experience.
1: Beach? I know that you read scripts over there.
2: Yeah, well and, and for 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 my experience there as I think is the case for a lot of internships at production companies, you know, there's there's kind of two halves to it. One is the internship one-on-one right you know if something needs doing be available be on hand um if someone needs either an errand run something delivered something picked up or just sort of help around the office cleaning things out you know all the stuff that you do when you're an intern right then the other side of that that is more film specific um was uh was coverage reports um and those are another staple of a lot of film internships uh production companies even small ones even ones much um you know sort of even ones that are kind of just barely getting off the ground get a lot of scripts uh that's true they get a lot of scripts sent in from a lot of people um and usually if they're a big enough company to have interns um those are who reads that first right and then and then There's all different kinds of cases, but usually the the interns are the sort of the first line of defense against the bad script really.
1: But how often, how often is it that a great script is just going to come from, from somebody that's unsolicited that like, does that ever even happen at a company like big beach films?
2: Well, you know, it's it's interesting because there's a lot of different reasons why a script would sort of come across your desk. Um, some scripts are solicited, some scripts are going around and they know that um that they're interested. Um, you know, some some scripts they might be bidding on, uh, or trying to get and they're just trying to get as many eyes on them as possible. And those are, you know, those tend to be the, the really good, vetted professional scripts um that, you know, they're reading in this office, they're reading across the street, they're reading down the block, you know, trying to um compete for, for for the project so that that has happened. other times it'll be a script that they're they're not interested in the script per se but they're interested in the writer you know a lot of um, gotcha. a lot of production companies keep tabs on writers either coming out of like grad school or writers who have done some work in the past who they think might be kind of oh this might be a fit for what we do so there were several quite good scripts that I read. Um, where they're just, you know, keep an eye on this person, what can they do well, what are their strengths, what are their weaknesses, not so much about what does the script one-to-one do for us. Then there's the category of, of just completely unsolicited, someone, you know, just sort of hit the contact button on their website and send in the script. Those and, tended to not be very good.
1: Right, right. But they still got read.
2: They still get red, or at least I can say that where I was, they they did. I know that some places, really really big places, I'm sure that the volume is such that like, I mean, scripts just would go straight to the to the trash can. There's got to be and
1: once in a blue where I mean, just if you're just looking at sheer numbers, you know that a nugget of gold comes in with all oh, the for shit. for
2: sure, for sure. I I think though that usually by the time you know, well, you know what it is so much it's not so much a writing ability test as it is a professionalism test right usually the people who are really kind of the pros or on track to be the pros or something like that they usually go through some process that isn't
1: just sending it in cold to right. a production company that makes sense because you know, yeah like, i've I know never even i don't I've never even sent a script cold and some, and I receive a lot of cold scripts. Mm-hmm. Um, but even in the early days when I didn't know anybody in the industry and I didn't really know what the hell I was doing, I don't, I don't think I ever just randomly, I never ever did the random, Hey, let me just send out my scripts to random production companies. Here you go. Here's my, here's a PDF of my script. Right. Enjoy. Right. Um, and then,
2: well, and, and well, cause I know that, you know, places have, policies of, of like, you know, we, we don't accept unsolicited scripts. Right. Cause you know, if you think of taking any big beach or any other indie production company, um, even a big indie production company, like, like a 24 or something, yeah. you know, like they can make how many movies a year, three, four, right. right? right. Like they, they got to And they're going to get three or four, I don't know, a 3 or 4,000 submissions. Right. True. And so, so So they're, they're not going to pick out of that huge pile to make something that isn't vouched for, something that isn't, you know, something they don't have a point of contact for. Yeah. Extremely unlikely.
1: That makes perfect sense. Um, But I think it's important to also educate people that are younger, that are starting out in the process, you know, um, or just people that don't know, that are interested. So it's important things to talk about.
2: I think that there's, there's still a memory out there of a time when that kind of was the way stuff worked um, in the nineties. I know that that was, it was never a very high odds proposition, but you would hear really high profiles um, um, like Shane Black sending a script in spec and, and getting it made. I don't know that
1: actually. I know that he got started <laughs> at such a young age and he made lethal weapon or cow. something when he was like yeah. 23. I didn't know that it was That's just exactly from. what that was. That's amazing.
2: Um, and he got like a million dollars. Um, cash for that script. Wow. Right. And then he that's was sort insane. of on his way. You know? Yeah. But that's sort of there's the memory of that out there, I think, in the collective understanding of how this works. But you know, those 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 times are not with us anymore if they ever really were. Yeah. No, but, you know, there interesting. There, are, there are a lot of other things yeah, sorry, but there are a lot of other things besides production companies that are great to send scripts cold to. You know, all sorts of workshops and, and, and programs and there's a million things that are that are excellent to send. It's cold, so that's not a sort of admonition. If anyone's listening and I have the script, I have a script under the pillow, just keep it there. No, there's there's great ways to, to send it out and, and, and work up to the point where you're not sending it cold.
1: Right, that's that's so true. That's a good point. That's been my experience too. There's so many different industry events. There's opportunities where you can meet people, and then it's not quite. You're just sending it cold with some. Mm-hmm. paragraph I I don't I don't think I've ever even read them I receive them a lot um all the time and then sometimes it's a very awkward here's the story of a family in the <laughs> south that's like the mafia but they're hillbillies and they're trying to claw their way up to power and blah 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 and it's based off a true story and this is my family's life it, it's like here's the pdf it's like I'm sorry who who are you like <laughs> that's
2: wild <laughs> um that is wild. and then
1: people forget that when they're sending these things in, they're sending them to people, you know, it's <laughs> so, and yeah, a, and yeah, a big part of this sure. business is relationships. So building that rapport is so important. You know, sometimes mm-hmm. it happens over time. It's, it's not something that just happens overnight.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think, I think nine times out of 10, it happens over, over time and over a period of, of, you know, m- meeting a person multiple times and, and developing a relationship and stuff like that. For sure. What, you know, and I, 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 I do this so far from perfectly it's ridiculous but I think that's sort of one thing that writers maybe we don't not that it doesn't come naturally but we sort of aren't always inclined to just get get out there in that way Oh, right? it's
1: a, yeah, to socialize in that sort of way yeah because writing well, itself is such a solitary sort of, sort of art
2: yeah you want to like bury in a project a lot of the time and, and it's funny like one of the things that I am learning at this moment even is, is, you know, filmmaking is a combination of a thousand different things. None of which you're filmmaking.
1: You know? uh, <laughs> I mean, I've learned that myself over the years is like, think about how, how often I'm on set versus how often I'm doing other things, you know, whether it's in pre, pre production, right. post production, all, all sorts right. of things, but you know, the amount of actual on set time percentage wise is very small.
2: For sure. For sure. Well, I remember I was, I was, once I was pa I was PA-ing a commercial um, at a hospital and, and these two doctors there were, were talking to uh, the director and the, and the I think the, 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 the ad guy um, from, the, from the agency. And they were like, so how long have you been working on this piece? Oh, about, the, about four or five months. Um, and how long is the piece going to be? Oh, about three minutes. So you're boiling, for, you know, four months of work down to to just get three minutes of a final cut. And, you know, the, the, the the set to onset ratio of that is just ridiculous. That's the way it is. You know, that's the way it works.
1: That's, that's a big reason why I actually, I try to pick a lot of people's brains, you know, like, because there might be actors that have been on sets. They've been doing television work for years and years and years, and they've logged countless hours on sets. They're production designers, you know, every facet in the industry, I always try to, do deep dives and pick their brains about their experiences. And, you know, that's a big reason I love podcasting because I mm-hmm. just have a naturally curious mind with a lot of different things, and especially when it comes to the industry, different people's positions and experiences because you can learn a lot that way. Oh, and it's, for sure. And it's fascinating. And then you sure. also, I mean, specific to learning a lot, you learn, sometimes it's important to learn what not to do. And, you know, you know, so you don't have to make, those mistakes the hard way. And if certain things oh, yeah, could be avoided, you're like, oh, well, I didn't even think about that because, you of know, course. we're in, that's the good things about the times that we're living in because there's, there's kind of, I mean, the amount of knowledge that you could learn almost like from primary sources is sort of unprecedented because of the internet, because of just watching interviews oh, yeah. on YouTube, as well as reading articles and things like that.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, sort of in, Position that, that I ended up someone you know kind of just getting their their feet a little wet in, and in the past couple of years starting out like that's like invaluable to 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 have as just a way of knowing something. Yeah, um, exactly. As opposed to knowing nothing when you show up on day one, right? Like, because those I, are the I,
1: options. Exactly, man. That's why I start when uh, when I was first first starting out and I didn't know anything. I didn't know, you know anybody but I was watching tons and tons and tons of movies and DVDs and then with the audio commentary from the directors Mm. and them talking about their experiences and I remember watching I think hard eight Paul Thomas Anderson's movie and it was like he's like great movie and he goes in the commentary he's like he's like I'm doing this commentary but he's like you have to realize I'm a director that's learned a lot from watching audio commentaries because I had laser discs you know back in the day Mm. he's like I used to watch Laser Laserdiscs with the director's commentary. I'm like, whoa, that's pretty cool that even Paul Thomas Anderson learned a lot. So, hmm. you know, things Thanks, like I that. I to do that.
2: That sounds like I, I've, I've really very rarely done the audio commentary.
1: Oh, uh, man. Other,
2: I, yeah. I, I, well, of, yeah, because it now it's becoming there. a
1: lost art because... Well, I mean, yeah, like,
2: streaming, it's, it's really hard to find right, that Right. Right,
1: true. I, I always wish there was a company that the streaming services would start implementing that because well, why wouldn't I would watch like a Netflix movie with the audio commentary, you know?
2: Well, you know what did do that? It was really cool. And I, I, I have to check if it's sort of more recent iteration. did that. remember, remember film struck before, before criterion channel existed.
1: I've heard of film struck, but I never watched it and I don't know much about it. it. I've definitely heard of it though.
2: It was, man, it was so great. It was, it was basically criterion channel before criterion channel. Gotcha. Um, It was, and it was sort of—I mean that very literally. It was the Criterion Channel, Criterion Collection was a part of it. Um, Gotcha. And then it—I think it was—it was run by Turner or or Warner Brothers or something, and whatever big studio behind it, uh, whatever big studio was behind it chose to to shut it down, and then Criterion Channel came out of that. So I I actually haven't checked if, if Criterion Channel does this, but FilmStruck would do this thing where there was either, I mean, you can choose to watch it with um, either directors commentary or even watch it with like film analysis from like critics and scholars and things like that.
1: That's amazing. Um, within
2: the streaming service. Really cool.
1: Yeah. That's so cool. Cause I've even watched older films that, you know, the directors have passed away, but you'll have some like chair of a film department or, you know, like a, like a known Mm -hmm. film critic doing the audio commentary. Like, I think I've, you know, definitely watched certain French new wave films that way and, you know, like certain old films and you learn a lot that way as well. Yeah. Did, when you were working at Big Beach, did you ever have any encounters with like Mark Turtletaub or uh, Peter Seroff or any of like those guys? Did, did anybody ever like give you like a good piece of advice? Like, did you ever, like, what was like your Uh, biggest takeaway? Like, what did you learn? Oh Yeah.
2: Well, you know, just sort of big picture. You know, I was 18 when I started that. Um, so, I, I, I the, the biggest thing I learned was just like, you know, how to get up and go to an office every day and and and, and you know do a office job and 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 sort of acclimate to that kind of space, right? Yeah, no, um,
1: those but, those soft skills are important were, too to, to oh, just yeah. dealing with people and just like little things about what's you know what is professionalism.
2: For sure, for sure, and, and that, so that was you know that was the biggest thing, and it was my my first taste of, uh, my first of many tastes of of commuting into, into New York, um, but uh, as far as discreet advice, I, I I did um I. Would meet and, and, and sort of have conversations over over sort of office lunches with with those producers there, and they're very nice. I remember. Uh, I think the best piece of advice, though, I got to give credit. I think he's a producer there now, but he was the office manager at the time, and he was kind of one of the people who oversaw the interns. A guy named Josh Cohen there, who who, who I asked him advice about making shorts because I was interested in, in doing something through a student grant program that. My, my school had that I, that I wound up doing a few years later. And he, I know he, he had recently made, produced a student film. And one thing he told me for, for writing in particular was like, and, and, and it's one of the things that you'll hear a lot at lower levels of writing. that's so important to know is, is number one, write for your limitations. You know, don't, don't think that you can just sort of figure it out later when you could just figure it out on the page, right. For, for what, what, You'll be able to produce, right? You know, no, no big costume drama who business for The first micro budget, whatever, right? Um,
1: for sure, it is important has, to write with yeah. budget in mind, for sure.
2: And he also told me another thing that I that I really like as a as a piece of advice. Um, you know, in short form, you know, think think of what the shortest kind of story, what the shortest sort of form a story can take is Um, he's like, it's a joke. You know, a horse walks into a bar, a bartender says, why the long face? There's sort of that term that smells like a story in there. Um, And so I think the other thing he said is don't try to be too, you know, don't try to write something too dramatic or one piece or something like that in a seven minute, five minute short, whatever. Um, So those those were great things to hear for a person who was just starting to screenwrite who has tendencies to be accepted in all of those respects. Oh, um,
1: fantastic advice and pragmatic advice as well, which is really absolutely. great.
2: So that one, I remember those, those, those two things stuck with me. Yeah. But there was, you know, there's so much to take from, from early experiences like that.
1: At this point, I'd like to go into the second portion of the podcast where we talk about two, of your favorite films and specifically Two of your favorite movie scenes from any two films, mm-hmm. and
2: I, I'm I'm so
1: excited. <laughs> my, my <laughs> well, wh- which 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 is the one that you want to talk about first? I know I know which ones they are because you mentioned them yeah. to me yesterday. Um, so I know maybe we'll talk about the third man. Let's do it. Let's, let's do it. it. One let's, one of let's dive my into the third man. Movies of all time. And. I have to give Bobby the credit because I'd heard of the third man, of course. And I thought I had watched it when I was much, much younger. I don't think I gave it a proper watching because I watched it more recently and completely loved it. And it was as if I was watching it for the first time. So thank you, Bobby, for really putting that movie back on oh, my man, radar.
2: My, my pleasure. Anything I can do to get that movie on more screens. Yeah.
1: That Yeah. Um, it's amazing. It's, it's so a good. masterpiece. It's so good. I loved every minute yeah. of the movie.
2: And, 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 even more specifically, and this is the scene that we're going to
1: talk about today,
2: um, the Ferris Wheel scene, uh, sort of as a totem for, for Orson Welles's entire every second that he's on screen in that movie is, is just a plus 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 stuff. Are you able um, to give
1: a qu- a quick synopsis of the Third Man, like of a, course, like a quick of rundown of what the movie's about? And it's okay if um, we actually give some spoilers. I mean, you know, spoiler gonna do, we, alert: we, there's going to be spoilers. Yeah. In this, in this discussion for these next two films?
2: Spoiler, spoiler, spoiler. Although we will try to, I guess, I don't know. Spoiler now. Um, and if, if you don't want to know anything about the movie, um, I can't recommend strongly enough that you stop whatever you're doing, watch the movie, and then pop back on and join us because that's you a know, brilliant, brilliant piece of film. Um, but uh, that said, we're going to spoil stuff starting now. Um, the basic story is uh, Joseph Cotton plays an American writer um, who writes like pulp westerns coming to Vienna right after World War II. So it's a very war-torn city. And he is there on the promise of a job from his childhood friend, Harry Lyme. When he gets there, he learns that Lyme is dead. Um, but he you know starts asking some questions. And and it's such
1: a great character name too, like from a screenwriting perspective. Harry like I, I just oh. love the name, like Isn't Harry it? Lime. Yeah, it's just. Uh, Isn't it so distinctive? It's and, so distinct.
2: And and, and the, the fact that he is Harry and he's Holly, and the way that you know, they play on that you over know, the course of the that is movie, where we were, it's these similar names, but they're kind of flipped in this way, where where, where Alita Valley's character um, keeps calling Holly Harry, right?
0: Yes. Um, yeah.
2: Uh, but anyway, so, so he starts sniffing around, doesn't feel right to him, and he uncovers something. He uncovers that things are not as they seem, shall we say. Um, and Orson Welles, playing Harry Lyme, is revealed to uh, not be in fact dead and makes one of the great entrances into the movie um, an hour and ten minutes into the film. You is the first time you see like the top billed movie star
1: in the movie, um, which is incredible. Yeah, and, and, and t- it, sort of makes it, it takes a lot of balls as a screenwriter to be like, "All right, we're not going to reveal him until an hour and ten minutes it in." It really does. <laughs> well, I think the only
2: the only comparison for something like this is like Kevin Spacey Seven, true. Um, which we you know not
1: going to spoil too many movies here, but um, <laughs> well, if they haven't seen Seven, I have to question. Is it somebody that's actually an audience of this podcast?
2: <laughs> uh, point, yeah, point taken. Um, anyway, so the scene that we're going to talk about in in, in in greater depth is the, the Ferris wheel scene. Um, it's the only scene in the movie in which Harry Lime speaks. His his character looms so large over the entire movie, but he only has any lines to speak of. In one five-minute scene of just, I, I I can't think of a character whose screen time was so compressed, and yet he was so you know such a prominent feature of the film.
1: Such incredible presence,
2: so well that you know he'll you'll find him on near the top of every like sort of best villain, best character, all those sorts of things. Those those kinds of lists.
1: Um, it's so amazing. So well done.
2: Yeah. And, is there any? and basically, any and basically, basically
1: Holly is confronting. Harry Lyme on the Ferris Wheel. It's like they're they're having their first sort of like, well, what is going on with you sort of conversation? And yeah. Holly's been probing into it with the police, and Harry Lyme's sort of a racketeer, or he's become a racketeer, mm-hmm. unbeknownst to Holly, who is surprised that he was involved with sort of illegal things. And there's sort of an interesting premise that's set up in the beginning of the film because it's it's the post war. Mm-hmm. and um they're in Vienna, right, and yeah, but it's like there's four different sections, one that's run by the Americans, one that's run by
2: i think it's a i think it's british French, Russian, and American that's right
1: good call mm-hmm.
2: that backdrop of the war right is I, I think is kind of one of the keys to to this scene and that it's key to their relationship um I remember uh, uh, wrote a whole uh my favorite paper that i ever wrote in college was on this film and sort of the, the idea that this film is really about friendship right and it, it's these um these two these two friends who have not seen each other since before the war one experienced it in europe one experienced it in america one is sort of a downbeat disillusioned person at heart but the other one is just completely you know they're a completely changed person they're unrecognizable and they've morally fallen apart, right? Harry Lyme is is w- one of the things I love about this scene. He's 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 using these little heartburn pills, these tablets um and he's on his last one. You know, he, he he's run out of these heartburn pills. He's absolutely at his end. Um and he does and his and is almost unrecognizable to his to his friend. Um
1: Yeah. It, it, and I yeah. love I really love the dialogue. In this scene, it's that's so, so fantastic great. when he's basically talking so about great. how he, as a racketeer, he's not that different than the government is. And he says, mm-hmm. well, they have their, five pl- their five-year their plans and so do I. And then Holly oh, says, yeah. well, you used to believe in God. He's like, well, I still, I do, still do believe, believe in, in God, God old, old boy, man. You know? yeah. huh. I yeah. believe in God and mercy and all that, but the dead are happier dead. And to me, that deeply ties into a theme that I've always been talking about is how people how justification to me is the root of all evil because people just justify mm. bad deeds. What they want to do. What they want to do, and they start just justifying more and more sort of messed up things.
2: Yeah, well, and you can see that spirit of, of, the, of the war that I mentioned earlier, right, where, you know, Holly has his, he kind of emerged from it, his principles unbroken, his faith not really tested in the same way. Um, maybe faith is the wrong word, but a sort of belief in, in sort of humanity and ideals, things like that. Whereas, um, excuse me, whereas, uh, Harry comes out and he's like, Well, I, I do believe in God, but, you know, who cares if people right, are right, death, right, right. death is so inevitable to him. It's sort of so soaked in. You can feel that the trauma of an entire continent in the, in his sort of half of this equation. Yeah. And, 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 and a word for, for Orson Welles is this movie. One thing I love about his acting, I think he's the only actor in, in, classical Hollywood who is just not afraid to just step onto people's lines and just totally jump in and like interrupt characters. Right. Cause it, and it, and, and back in, so many times in this scene, there's no daylight at all between Joseph Cotton's line and Orson Weld's line. And it just brings that tension so close together and it keeps the, the cat and mouse going so well.
1: True. Yeah. And I just, I just love, yeah, I love his acting, his performance. He's so natural. And it, it there's it's so there's such a level of authenticity. The
2: confidence that he has as he's just walking yeah. around that Ferris wheel, you know, yeah. and, and knowing that he's going from I'm reaching out to my friend, I'm justifying myself, I'm considering whether I'm going to murder my childhood friend right here and right now. Right. And he jumps between all these these different spots effortlessly. So great.
1: Yeah, it is great.
2: And then Joseph Cotton has a, has a perfect counterpoint where he's he's this very sincere. Even their two faces, like Orson Welles, has this you know, the shine on his face the whole time, a sort of mischief grin, and and Joseph Cotton is is you know he has those those great sort of sleek features, right? Where he's he's just sort of serious and earnest the entire time and wondering, you know, like who this person is now right. that he doesn't recognize.
1: Yeah, it's interesting because it's almost like a. Uh... I don't want to compare it to like, well, maybe let me make that comparison to. It's almost Go like it. uh, Breaking Bad, like Walter White. It's like you know, a, like a protagonist turning into an antagonist. But it's it's like he had this oh, yeah. vision of his friend of like, oh yeah, he was a great guy and he saved my life and that sort of thing. And you know, I yeah. owe it to him to find out what happened. But then when he meets him, he's and he sees that he's actually alive and not dead and sees what he's turned into. And oh yeah you know, the complexities of like, well, how well did I really know this guy or did this guy become this way, you know? I mean, the I nuance of I think that's that a great
2: reference for that transformation, yeah.
1: It's definitely ahead yeah. of its time, that film.
2: Oh, yeah. They, they were not, you know, occasionally you'll see characters that are really comfortable sitting in sort of these, these complicated dark places, right, and, and, and reckoning with that, you know. Um, Bogart in A Lonely Place comes to mind, Um, Robert Mitchum was somewhere, someone who would, who would go there. You know, he, he, he'd do like Night of the Hunter and really take you to a place that classical Hollywood was not by and large comfortable going. Yeah. But, um, I don't think it's ever been done in such a sort of layered way that is, that is both unbelievably efficient and simple. It's a five minute scene. Um, and it's all that this character has. But but you know you can unwrap it for for hours, right? Um, where uh, uh, like even the moment when he the moment when he there's a moment when he slides open um, the door and as he's sort of weighing he's simultaneously weighing whether to kill Joseph Cotton while also trying to justify his racketeering. He looks down. And he says, "Would you really feel anything if one of those dots stopped moving?" You know so and that's profound. sort of how he
1: yeah.
2: yeah, but the film has been setting you up to disagree with him, right, in these really subtle, brilliant ways, because obviously you disagree with him on moral terms, generally, no matter what, right but like um, the way that the movie it lingers throughout on these just shots of people in alleyways looking at people walking by and, and you know shots of like someone eating a sandwich on the side of the road women poking out of, of, of behind doorways and, and you know like these just tired faces of people on the street um those are the dots right you know those are those yes. dots that he's talking about and you've seen them up close and the, sort of the moon on their stubble right like these beautiful portraits that pass quickly but they they they, they, they don't need to be there for the story but they're there to, to kind of Preload your 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 response to that statement, right? That these people are more than dots. They're, they're they you see their faces up close. Well put. Thank you. And then, and then even beyond that, uh, there are some times when you do get sort of these shots from above that that uh, render people on the ground to be like dots. But one thing that's so brilliant about this movie is that they only bring those perspectives in when they're either talking about Looking at or alluding to Harry himself, right? So he becomes a dot in some of those other shots.
1: Right, right. It's so interesting.
2: Like, I don't know if you remember the moment when they're, they're at the, um, the porters and they're talking about who was the third man, right? Who was yeah. that third man who was there yeah. when the death happened? And then he looks out the window and says, It could have been anyone, right? And you see that dot view from extreme yeah. overhead shot.
1: Yeah, But I they're love talking that about too.
2: Harry, right? Yeah. Harry could have been anyone. Exactly. I don't know. It's such a good
1: scene. Such a good scene. Such a great film. And it's funny because I was going to text you as soon as I watched the movie. That Ferris wheel scene. Like I was just going to text you <laughs> because I just that also blew me away. So it's kind of cool that that's uh, one of the scenes that you wanted to talk about on the cast today. Uh, but no surprise because oh, yeah. it's it's so iconic, so amazing. And um,
2: yeah, for sure. And it has one of the one of the one of the great improvised lines. Um, is is Orson Welles' last line in that whole scene. Um, And you can kind of tell it's improvised because it doesn't totally feel the piece, and it feels very much of something that Orson Welles would think about and want to say. But, you know, in Italy under 30 years, they had, uh, in Italy under the borders for 30 years, I should say, they had uh, murder, terror, bloodshed, and produced the Renaissance. In Switzerland, they had 500 years of democracy and peace
1: and produced the cuckoo clock. Produced the cuckoo clock. Yeah, it's a classic. So, it's amazing. But no, and it actually, kind of true. It makes you think about conflict and art and creativity. And
2: it's and more a part of yeah. It's more more of of, uh, of Harry Lyme, like you say, justifying himself.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's
2: true. Um, and then the, the the last thing I'll say on on this scene, and you know, I, I think you could tell the, the entire story of, of Harry Lyme in four facial expressions from Orson Welles from this movie. You know, if you just sort of line them up and, um, the grin that he makes when he, he, he enters the scene. And then in this moment, the the, the recognition and change in his face when, when Joseph Cotton tells them that he, they dug up his coffin and that they know he's not there, you know, there's this yes. really great, just shattering of his confidence that happens.
1: Yeah. It's a great moment.
2: Um, and you can just sort of see how just totally it is with Zendie is and how much stuff is behind the curtain that we don't see with Harry Lyme. Like, you know, how did you get like this? What happened to him during the war?
1: Yeah. Anyway, tangent, all no, that. Is no, tangent. it's, yeah, but, no, it's a, it's interesting stuff. And I agree. Nice man. So, Awesome. so let's talk about the second movie. Okay, cool. Let's talk Vertigo. Let's
2: talk Vertigo. The second movie is Vertigo. Um, should we do a summary summary of this,
1: or or is this? Yeah, do a quick recap because quick the plot. Summary. I mean, although it's such a in so, there's so many nuances, there's so many complicated things, but in in a way, mm-hmm. it's also simple too. There, it's it's like a right. There's a simplicity to it,
2: and it's one of those movies where, like, if I just if you just tell someone the plot, they're like, "Hey, that's a great movie." That's a <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, I know I
1: know what you mean. I know exactly what you mean because this is also another movie it doesn't sound like much, does that it? when I first watched it, I was in my early twenties I think um but I was also i think I was watching it with like a group of cousins and it was like after Thanksgiving, and it's like it's not the kind of movie you could just watch as you're like kind of chit chatting or having conversations. You know, like right, it kind this, of demands a notepad. It demands, it demands like your total attention at the minimum, watching it with the lights off. To me, that's the new litmus. That's when I'm thinking about these movies that I've seen in the past. Like, Was I watching it with the lights off, or was I watching it when mm-hmm. the lights were on? Because mm-hmm. the, both The Third Man and Vertigo, when it, the first time I watched them, the lights were on. So that means that they couldn't have had my complete attention. So then watching them again, um, I made sure that the lights were off, and that's all I was doing was watching these films.
2: Nice. It, it makes so much bigger difference than you'd think, right? Like, it, yeah. I don't know what it is, but when when the lights are on, there's just so much stuff visually competing for your attention, even if it's just like, you know, a book in the corner of the room that's just you know brightly colored, something or whatever.
1: I think. Um, I mean, I think I'm probably never going to watch a movie again with the lights on if I could avoid it. I mean, there's times when you can't if you're on an airplane or something yeah, yeah, like sure. that. But if I could avoid it, you know, because I think.
2: I don't know what it is, but it makes a big difference.
1: It makes a big difference.
2: Um, and and as a terrible segue, you know, there there were early film theorists thought of the lights being off as hypnosis, hypnosis, Hitchcock vertigo, kind of connects. Doesn't Yes, really, no, it does it,
1: connect. And actually, I'm glad that a, you've made that connection. It's a
2: podcasters effort to to to. to to reach out to the medium
1: here. No, no, it's good. Um, um, and actually, it's something that I've <laughs> talked about quite a lot. You know, maybe we I'm sure we've talked offline about this, Of that my philosophy about film t- tapping into the subconscious, not just the conscious, but the subconscious, mm-hmm. and how it's a form that should, at its highest levels, also tap into the subconscious. And by the use of sound oh, yeah. design, by the use of visuals, by, you know, the subtleties of it, I think at the highest levels and Vertigo is just such a iconic example and it's widely regarded by many people as being one of the greatest films of all time and rightfully so.
2: For sure. And and no one was more interested in those subconscious levels than Hitchcock, you know? Yes. Um, that was, that was more than a hobby horse. That was a deep fascination and you never see that more clearly than you do in this movie. And particularly in this scene we want to talk about, which we'll skim through a quick synopsis first, Um, Jimmy Stewart is a private spoilers, by the way, spoilers in every direction. Um, So mute now or forever hold your peace. Um, (laughs) Jimmy Stewart is a private detective um, who is hired by a friend of his to monitor his wife's seemingly very strange behaviors. Um, She's fascinated with death, all these sorts of things. She follows her she thinks that she is like the reincarnation of of, of an ancestor of hers 100 years ago it seems um they you know long story short they wind up falling in love and she then dies in this really sudden like she falls from a height and he's you know the whole title of the movie comes from his fear of heights he's trying to get over his partner plummeting to his death anyway she um she dies he's unbelievably depressed um, and then one day he sees a, a girl on the street who looks just like her. Um, Except
0: with but her hair's hair. different. Yeah,
2: yeah her hair is different. Her makeup's different. Her little smile's different, but her face looks just like her. And he, over the next half of the movie, he, he, actually, it's probably the last third of the movie, he's trying to, you know, he takes her to get her hair done. He buys her new clothes to match, um, what the woman who died looked like. Um, and without, going farther than we have to to get to this scene this scene is I, I just sort of call it the green light scene when she finally puts on the old clothes of his you know, now dead former lover and comes out of the the, the hotel bathroom in the new clothes and he sees her for the first time and the, the, sort of that moment is, it, you know, no, nothing happens, nothing is said, but it's so richly colored and lit and, and the sound, the Bernard Sherman the soundtracks really swells into this big repetition of the main kind of musical theme of the movie. Um, yeah, and that's that's, that's so, where we are. It's
1: so hypnotic, that scene, and the use of the really mirror is. is really incredible because of the green glow that kind of, it kind of foreshadows yeah. Judy's total transformation into Madeline by the time that you mm-hmm. see her end up emerging from the bathroom and you have that glimmering white green light on her and almost ghostly like. Oh, yeah. And then they embrace each other and Scotty loses and just he, he just submits and it's just to his
2: macabre, desires. There's a bizarre, dark, kind twisted thing, right? Where there's because I want to do a deep dive on that green light because I have a lot of thoughts about that green light nice um, i mean
1: it's without a doubt one of the most cinematic moments in the history of oh, film and
2: and and it's beautiful simply put just like it's stunning cuz jimmy Stewart and kim novak and 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 the way that they sort of approach each other so tentatively but it, it it's it's bizarre but it, and 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 it's beautiful on its on its own terms but all of the so much of the meaning of that moment comes from things not in that moment um and and sort of things that really are a product of Hitchcock's fascination and with, with sort of repeated topics. He he has like this this stable of things that he 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 really returns to. He's the ultimate tinkerer, right? So do you mind if I sort of dive in on the on the, the green light? And how this Absolutely, is, awesome.
1: Yeah, because um, the use of color is super it, interesting. His use of color And it makes
2: the scene, Yeah, you know, it, it, it's a different scene if it doesn't have that pale, deathly green light, absolutely flooding into the room from a neon sign outside. It's bouncing off Jimmy Stewart's tie and his eyes, you know, yeah, um, exactly. his eyes turn green in that, that moment. So great. Yeah. So not only has green been a huge color throughout that movie, right? Where, where, um, he uses these character tags,
1: right? Where where right? What, uh, like Scotty has has kind of red. like red, which yeah. is kind of like a sense of danger, sense of romance and love, and, you know. And then and
2: and Madeline is green, yeah, right. Which and, traditionally and,
1: and, is kind of represents like obsession, envy, desire. But in this film, to me, it sort of takes on this ephemeral sort of ghostly quality in terms of his desire.
2: Oh, for sure, And I think it rolls all of those into one and and sort of plays and changes them as it pleases, right? because the the shades change. You know, Madeline starts out in this rich emerald dress, you know and and it's this you know you you can talk about sort of the the green eyedness of Scotty when he sees her and 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 but it's you know green is both life and death. you know, like living things are green. Right. Yeah. but but ghosts are green. And and you go from this really vibrant, alive emerald, the green of a car, things like that, to the the green changes in this moment to something that's just pale and deathly, and strange. Um
1: also interesting to note that red and green are opposites, complementary right. colors on the color. Right. The...
2: And and the eyes connect them immediately, you know, and, and when you see her big, you know, billowing green dress in this richly dark red room of this restaurant. You know, um, it, it, it's it's really striking and it ties the two of them together from the start, you know. But, but even more than that, right, this is the culmination of a lot of his uh, fascinations throughout multiple movies where um, not only is it sort of the culmination of that pattern within the movie, this is a blonde replacing a blonde you know, a, a woman sort of making herself look like a lost blonde, which you know Hitchcock famously cycled through um, so many different actresses in kind of pursuit of this type, right? Where where he 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 would use uh, he 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 had Grace Kelly in a lot of his um, American films until she left to 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 be you know Princess of Monaco. Um,
1: right, and. and and there was something interesting personal. to me toward like how Madeline even though totally different in personality and, and temperament to his blonde friend Midge, who is his college friend slash uh mm-hmm. former fiance, but you know com- completely different in terms of personality, there's still that blonde hair there's there's a common denominator there
2: yeah and 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 it, that's no another, accident it's not and and there's another it's funny Hitchcock you know when he, when when he puts glasses on a woman, it like there's like there's there's a bespectacled woman that recurs in a lot of his films, like *Strangers on a Train*. This film, I I, I don't know what he sort of sees in that, but there's there's sort of this archetype that Midge is filming as well that has been evolving through a lot of his filmography. Yeah, because um, there's always like some like overly talkative younger sister, right, who wears glasses. Who doesn't really know when to say the socially appropriate thing? And Ridge is kind of in that tradition. So there's these two archetypes of women that run throughout his film, and 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 the attempt to to turn Judy, the the, the second woman that um Scotty encounters, back into sort of the the icy blonde, beautiful but very cold Madeline mimics. Um, you know, in many ways that the pattern Hitchcock had of of you know he'd replace Grace Kelly he eventually became obsessed in a really creepy way with with Tippi Hedren right and this movie is between his his sort of loss of Grace Kelly and and finding Tippi Hedren so he's cycling through actresses in the same way yeah. and that's fascinating it is but we haven't even gotten to the green light um, and I, I I feel like I'm you know, I feel terrible like I'm sort of
0: no go for
2: it. monopolizing things here not at all no. Um, but, uh, so the green light, okay, I, I love this because it's the culmination of every, really everything he's done with color film up to that point. He begins his first color film in 1948 with Rope, um, which is a really cool movie, um, murder story in which in the final scene, it all takes place in one apartment, it's made to look like it's one shot actually. In the final scene when it's another Jimmy Stewart film, he's unmasking the killers, right, He's he's sort of, you know bringing him in, in in his way, there's a sign outside. That's amazing. First of
1: all, we have to take, uh, we have to take a moment to unpack that because he made his first color film just nine years before this movie. Right. And, or 11 years rather, but either way, you know, just like about like a decade before this movie. And then he makes this movie that I think any film student that's trying to understand color and color theory Absolutely. should watch this as a textbook example that does it better than 99.9% of films being made right now in 2020. You know, like, because there's a lot of colors, there's a lot of amazing stylistic things, but just the purposeful use of color in this film is outstanding.
2: And all before digital color grading.
1: Yes. All this was either done with
2: with practicals or, or with light yeah also sort of also noteworthy yeah
1: good good point yeah. bobby
2: um so like in it now you know if we want to do things like that we can control it so much more right you can sort of filter out the, the reds or blues or whatever in post yeah but uh they, they had to set this up to do it live so cool
1: i know it is so Um. Cool. so it's like when he did start working with color it's like man did he like master that yeah, he,
2: he, 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 and it didn't take long. Yeah. Um, but, but it's interesting because as you're saying, he mastered it and it's the product of his tinkering, right? Where there's, um, there are ways that he uses color that I think really culminate in that scene, Um, beginning very, at the very beginning with rope. And, you know, that over the course of that movie, cause it's kind of shot in real time, um, it goes from being afternoon to night. And at the end of the movie, the outside of the apartment is dark, but some neon lights come on. And as Jimmy Stewart's giving his big speech, revealing the killers, or dressing down the killers, really bright, monochrome lights keep blasting in repetitively. Like, there'll be a, a white light, and then a red light, and then maybe a green light, and it sort of fills the room in the same way, that a similar way, I should say, that, that this green light does. Um, so in, in the first chance that he had to play with the color of light, his first thought is, let me flood this room with color, this climactic scene for Jimmy Stewart. And it's exactly what we have happening in Vertigo. Yes. And it, it's, it's remarkable because then you see him carrying it through with other films, like there's a scene in The Man Who Knew Too Much early on when they're at this hotel and, and this suspicious guy shows up at the door unannounced, there's this, again, green light flooding in from outside that's just twinging everything eerily to just give you, you the sense that this may seem like it's going great, but you know something is wrong. Something's about to happen. There's cause for unease.
1: Um, so apparently Hitchcock spent a week filming, just a week, Filming one of the scenes where Madeline's staring at the portrait and uh, the the really did the museum at the Palace Legion of Honor just to get wow. the lighting right. Wow, just to get that precise. So that's um, his attention to detail was pretty much unprecedented, I think.
2: Yeah, he he he. At the very least, no one else, you know, no one, no one outdid him in that regard. There are yeah. there are other people who who. You know, Kubrick is obviously the, the famous example, and
1: right, right, right. You know, but up until that point, really you know, like precise, Kubrick, Kubrick was, you know, that's true. I mean, Kubrick was starting, yeah. yeah, starting to make films, you know, but like he was sort of at his
2: shining yeah, like, level of just like I'm going to do this a thousand times.
1: Well, Kubrick, yeah, Kubrick was outstanding too. But I mean, up in, to date, like I'm, I'm talking in the context mm-hmm. of up until that time. Yeah, yeah. In in the history of movies, it's just, he really changed the game. And it's kind of crazy to me. And I, I didn't realize this until recently. I've talked about this on another another episode of the podcast. Cause we had Kent Jones, who's a Hitchcock historian and made the great documentary oh, yeah, called right. Hitchcock Truffaut. So I didn't realize that Hitchcock wasn't critically that respected, you know? Um, he was not which is and, and, fucking and mind-blowing here a in, a, in here in the US. Yeah. Um yeah. and so Invertigo was a critical failure and a commercial failure, which is also mind-blowing because it's like, man, you know, I guess it was just really ahead of its time, you know.
2: It was and it's also it's a movie that it barely makes sense out of the context of his filmography, right? Like like we said, if I just told you the plot of the movie, you'd be like, "Really? That's that's all that happens?" You know,
1: um uh, well, I'll admit. I mean, Bobby you've had more sophisticated sophisticated taste at a younger age than I did I when, I, when I when I did in my early 20s because I don't I didn't have the real appreciation for the film in my early 20s that I did um from watching it again more recently my my wife loved it as well she's you know and um but it it really it it's it's totally remarkable it's and like for people that haven't seen it you really have to see it you really have to just sit down and Truly yeah. much. it is. There is. It is strange in a way, but like it's. It's like beautifully strange.
2: It is, and it's. It's. It's one of those films that, that so much of its 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 quality comes from the textural things of it, not not so much the the, you know, like the right, narrative. The right, the nonverbal.
1: Exactly. The not. Yeah. There's there's a lot of, and that's what I love about it too. I mean, the fact that Hitchcock could really tell stories not just from there. It's sparse with dialogue. You know, it's like really there's so many scenes that there is no dialogue where he's just driving mm-hmm. and following her. And then you hear, hear that amazing soundtrack by Bernard Herman on yeah. the score. And, and it's just, it's, it's so profoundly cinematic and just that scene mm-hmm. where, you know, it's, it's dark and then he opens up the door to the flower shop and then he's like, you know, spying on her when she's in the flower shop and that's just breathtaking.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and to that point, but I think that the sort of, the reliance on those elements is why this film is pretty hard to categorize. Because I, I know that there, there's a lot of debate over whether or not this is a, a noir. I will kind of go into my grave, a both waiting for someone to care about my opinion on this, and b arguing that it's not a noir. Yeah, I, um,
1: I, I didn't perceive it to be a noir. I didn't even know that that was a debate, to be perfectly honest. But it was. Well, I, it wasn't I, I my. It wasn't have, really my impression. It. Of it, you know, because it's
2: so specific to Hitchcock, right?
1: It's, right, right, exactly. It's Hitchcock. so Hitchcock.
2: And I, I, I there's, there's a lot of debate about Hitchcock in general and law and whether any of his shelves count. I would argue that there are definitely some, or there are very likely some that do, but this is not, yeah, this is this, this is so wrapped around his own subconscious and his own history of work. Um,
1: also important, this, also important to note that. Well, I didn't mean to cut you off. Actually go, no, go no, ahead. Okay. Go ahead. I, I was just gonna say this is infamous for uh this is where the Dolly Zoom was invented, the infamous Dolly Zoom. Oh of course.
2: Yeah. Uh, Have we not talked about that yet?
1: So um, yeah, that's pretty pretty good shot. Yeah. Um famously also used by Scorsese and films like Goodfellas and so many films, uh since then. But you know, the first time was where it was used ever. It
2: got it smart. Um yeah, I mean, it's 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 tempting to try to kind of come up with a, a link between this and the Ferris wheel scene, right? You um, know,
1: it is. And it's funny because I was thinking about some links as we were just talking about the third man that, you know, the fact like Holly, Harry, um, and then in this film, like Judy, mm-hmm. Madeline, but then also Madeline, Midge, like the blonde hair and the blonde hair. Like there's... There's sort of and then just following somebody, you know. Um, there 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 are some common themes, even though they're they're very sort of different films. Well
2: and one that I would get at, and I think that this is kind of maybe why um they I, I full disclosure I did not sort of think of them at the time in conjunction to each other, but I went in sort of having chosen the Ferrisville scene and then this was the next one that came um, came to mind maybe maybe something has to do with uh you know, there are two scenes one person recognizing a change in another person or kind of recreate another person in somebody else right like yeah. you know joseph cotton is recognizing that his his friend even though he's not dead and he thought he was dead he's actually deader than he thought he was right because the friendship is dead you know and and, and and the, the, the person that he knew is dead, even if the person standing next to him. And Scotty in, in 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 Vertigo, Jimmy Stewart is is unable to accept that the, the woman he loved is dead, and he tries to bring her back in this in this very you know strange way of of, of dressing up somebody else, and, and, and the dissonance of of that in that room. I don't know. I think that there is a there is a link yeah you know there's are of uh, people sort of confronted with or trying to create a change in other people
1: agreed, and both of them end on <laughs> very impactfully, you know
2: oh yeah each oh film. Yeah. yeah I mean in each film ends look, we've spoiled enough already yeah true. Um, we can we can go there um yeah. just in case that there's anybody listening to this who has listened to this far. And not minded the spoilers or not been spoiled and would have been spoiled by what's coming next. I don't think that can possibly fit anybody's description. But in case another <laughs> spoiler <laughs> warning, yeah, both you know both end with, with with one person causing the ultimate death of the opposite number in this
1: exactly. equation, right? Like, yeah.
2: you know, Joseph Cotton kills Harry line, How much kills Harry line. in the end? And Jimmy Stewart brings.
1: Causes the death of Judy. Brings new
2: Madeline, which is old Madeline, back right. up to the top of that tower and causes her death. Exactly. Um, and she gets them, you know, th- both weirdly have to do with heights. So I don't know if that's relevant. But, yeah, you know, you, you sort of it's get that dot view and Vertigo.
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah, fascinating stuff. man. there's, there's such good scenes and oh, such man, good films. such
1: great films that even if you've listened to this far and you haven't seen these movies, to me, a film isn't just about the plot. I mean— we could of talk course. all day long about these plot and spoilers, but that's not the reason that you watch, watch the film. The reason that you watch the film is to take in that whole cinematic experience, to be sort of hypnotized by the sound and the images. And, Absolutely. And both and these, of them these, achieve these that. And these
2: moments do those, do those things so well. You know, I, I,
1: yeah, exactly.
2: Rewatching those scenes, and I rewatched The Third Man yesterday um, in the run-up to this you know I've seen that I don't know how many times I've seen that movie but every time it just kind of hits you like new even if you know what's coming next it's
1: now when so you rewatch it on well this uh, now this is just like some inside stuff because me and you were talking about <laughs> like did when you rewatch the third man did you pay attention to that actor's face that was the police officer that was familiar with holly's books yes. did you see did you see his face when he got his hands on the letters and he was saying, no, no, I did. Um, don't worry. We don't read that. That's just evidence. But like, it's almost like he could hardly contain his excitement to like read all those letters. And it makes it as the odd to me, as the audience, it makes it even that much more sort of like, that was Oh anything. man.
2: Cause, Cause I had, you know, I had never noticed, I had always sort of interpreted that moment a little differently that he was smiling to be nice and don't worry. We're like doctors. We're, we're kind of, you know, we don't, register this but that that now that you pointed it out that that is interesting and sort of that smile can read differently now yeah because of, the guy was of, a
1: reader he had read all of holly's books so it's clearly a guy who enjoys reading mm-hmm. you know yeah and this and is clearly be
2: the one who takes the letters it's interesting
1: yeah
2: yeah i mean there's so many little race notes like that um throughout the movie where you know that's what I
1: love about films like that the reward repeat watchability like The Third mm-hmm. Man or Vertigo you know there's always mm-hmm. more information or to take in it still rewards repeated watchings
2: of course and and you know and, and the beautiful thing is is and this is getting a, a bit saccharine here but every time you watch a movie you know you're you are a slightly different person so there's a variable that changes you know, the movie doesn't change but the person watching it does, you know, yeah. and 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 it, you can, as you as as you've said, your experience with these films has been, you know, when you've watched them at different points or in different ways, you know, your your experience of it changes, totally. You know, and 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 it sounds and my, like in these cases, it's for sure, richer. my level, yeah,
1: it's gotten richer. Yeah. My level of appreciation for the films has gotten richer, you know. Then you know, my own tastes have changed over the years, yeah, uh, for, for sure, for the better because. When I was much younger, I never even was exposed to foreign films, for example. And now I can't yeah. imagine a life of not knowing foreign films, you know?
2: For sure. And and I'm actually sort of to tie back into some of our earlier discussion of, of when these movies kind of came into our lives. You know, we're talking about when we kind of got interested in this stuff. I remember the first time I saw The Third Man, I said my dad called me into the room to show me this movie where the music sounded like SpongeBob music. And I was like, eight or like
1: that and, <laughs> was or, or, that his or, way of just tricking you was it the same thing as like what he I did to he like he's like oh yeah days. it's midnight like, uh but it was only nine of- o'clock <laughs> he's like oh by the way this is like spongebob SquarePants. you'll love it <laughs> oh man could be but he's like yeah here, there's,
2: there's little, show this movie. the music sounds just like spongebob you're gonna
1: love it how, um, and how old were you when you first watched the third man
2: Oh, I don't know. I must have been like ten. I, I don't know if I watched the whole thing at that point, but that was when I first sort of became aware of it, or something yeah, like that.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, like and you then
2: that I kind of just remembered film. it forever as oh, the, the that movie with the Ferris wheel and the I liked that. I don't know why That's I liked so funny.
1: that. But, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was definitely exposed to some great films when I was a kid. Like I remember watching even when I was nine or ten, watching Spartacus and things like that, and really loving that. I've never seen that. Yeah. Yeah. Um. And, you know just certain things like that or like going to the movies and watching Forrest Gump when it came out and just oh, that yeah. blew me away you know
2: mm-hmm. yeah, there's, there's, I think those I, I think all like you know sort of warm childhood memories are, are, are precious in their way but I think that for people who love film and love cinema those early or even if they're not the earliest that sort of those moments as a kid, when you get to kind of be brought into those things, um, and kind of have contact with them for the first time, I think it's so special. And, and, and and I think that everybody that almost everybody that I know who, who, who really loves cinema has those kind of early, early memories that they carry around.
1: Totally. A hundred percent. Well, Bobby, this has been an amazing talk, man.
2: Oh, it's been a blast. Thanks
1: for having me on. Awesome, Sounds man. Sounds good, man. Well, thanks again so much.
2: Take care of yourself. Stay
1: safe. Stay safe, everybody. Thanks for listening, yeah, everybody. Yeah, for sure. Thank you for listening to the Film Scene Podcast with
0: your host, Seth Cota. Today's episode featured screenwriter Bobby Peretti. Original music by Yuri Ryback. Supervising producer Shailene Gupta. Executive Producer Jeff Cutler Sponsored by Alphabet City Films